Welcome to the Practical Employment Law Podcast, a podcast covering all aspects of American employment law. I'm your host, Mark Chumley. It's time again for an update on the latest in labor and employment law developments. To remind you, updates are all based on recent cases that have been decided, new laws that have been passed, and general news from the world of labor and employment law. Let's start today with a religious discrimination case. We're looking at Groff versus DeJoy out of the Third Circuit. This case involved a United States Postal Service mail carrier who requested Sundays off to observe the Sabbath. The Postal Service had contracted with Amazon to deliver packages, including deliveries on Sunday. The employee was working at a large station with a sufficient number of rural carrier assistants for Sunday deliveries, so the local postmaster exempted the employee from Sunday shifts to allow him to observe the Sabbath as long as he provided coverage for other days of the week. Now, after a change in the labor agreement with the carrier assistants, Sunday deliveries were required, and the employee transferred to a smaller location to avoid the issue. However, the smaller location also began Sunday deliveries, so the issue resurfaced. Now, several options were presented to the employee by the postmaster to accommodate the religious beliefs. The postmaster offered to shift the employee's schedule so he could attend religious services in the morning before work. However, the employee needed the entire day off to observe the Sabbath. When a schedule shift was not an option, the postmaster sought other workers to help cover the employee's Sunday shifts. This resulted in the postmaster and other carriers having to work all of the Sunday shifts. A final option presented to the employee was to choose a different day to observe the Sabbath. However, this was not acceptable to the employee. There was also evidence that the employee's refusal to work Sundays contributed to a tense atmosphere among the other carriers. Ultimately, the employee resigned in 2019 and filed a lawsuit alleging disparate treatment and failure to accommodate under Title VII. The court noted that an accommodation is reasonable if it eliminates the conflict between employment requirements and religious practices. Thus, the court held a legally sufficient accommodation under Title VII is one that eliminates the conflict between the religious practice and whatever the job conflict is. Here, the offered accommodation did not eliminate the conflict, so the court turned to an undue hardship analysis. The Supreme Court has held that an employer is not required to accommodate at all costs. The inquiry must turn on whether an accommodation would create an undue hardship on the employer and its business. Both economic and non-economic costs can be used to show undue hardship. Examples of undue hardship include negative impacts on the employer's operations, such as on productivity or quality, personnel and overtime costs, increased workload on other employees, and reduced employee morale. Now, in this case, the court concluded that exempting the employee from Sunday shifts was an undue hardship because it created a significant cost to the United States Postal Service in regard to the imposition placed on the coworkers, the workplace and workflow disruption, and the lowering of worker morale. So the takeaway here is that while employers must accommodate religious conflicts with workplace rules or schedules, there is a limit, and in this case the limit was reached. Now, I would point out, however, that the employer is in a bad position because it's faced with either imposing the undue hardship on itself by granting the accommodation, or being sued and facing the ongoing expense and disruption of a lawsuit. 
Now that's fine if you're the United States Postal Service and have an army of attorneys at your disposal, but this is a much more difficult scenario for smaller employers. Next, let's consider Burling versus Gravity Diagnostics, a Kentucky case that was pretty widely reported in the media recently. In that case, an employee told his office manager a few days before his birthday that he did not want the office to have a birthday celebration for him due to his anxiety disorder. You can see where this is going. The employee's request somehow slipped through the cracks, and on the day of his birthday, he discovered a birthday party had been planned for him in the break room, which triggered a panic attack that forced the employee to leave the office suddenly. The next day, managers confronted the employee about his reaction to the birthday party, and he had another panic attack and was sent home from work. Three days later, the employer terminated the employee, citing concerns that other employees had been frightened for their safety when the employee suffered the panic attacks. The lawsuit followed, and skipping ahead to the end, the jury awarded $450,000, which was $120,000 in lost wages and benefits, $30,000 in future lost wages and benefits, and $300,000 for mental pain and anguish. The employee is also entitled to recover attorney's fees and costs, so probably add a low six-figure number to the total. At the end of the day, this is a pretty straightforward case. The employee alleged that his employer failed to reasonably accommodate his request to skip the birthday party and failed to accommodate his request that managers stop confronting him about his reaction to the party. The employee also alleged that he was terminated because of his disability. Now, the employer argued that the employee could not demonstrate that he had a disability that substantially limited a major life activity and that they had a legitimate non-discriminatory reason for his discharge, that is, workplace concerns from other employees about their safety. Now first, arguing that an employee's condition is not a covered disability is almost always a losing argument these days. And also, it's very difficult to fathom how the employee's need to leave work due to a panic attack places other employees at risk. It seems possible that the other employees were disturbed not so much by the risk of danger to themselves, but by their own reaction to the coworker who had a condition that they might not be comfortable with. Either way, the threat to the workplace argument in the context of a disability discrimination case is a very tough hurdle to clear. So in the end, you have an employer that didn't give an employee a very simple accommodation and then tried to justify it with two of the most difficult arguments to win in this area of employment law. Not good. They probably should have just apologized to the employee when it happened. Of course, we never have all of the details from these cases, but employers need to take employee mental health issues and requests very seriously, as they are becoming more and more common. I almost hate to bring up my final topic, because it seems like everyone wants to move on. But let's finish this episode with a couple of COVID cases. Now, initially, I'll say I'm still dealing with several COVID-related cases, but most are related to reductions in force that occurred as a result of COVID and focus how, on how employees were selected for termination. And these cases are really just garden-variety discrimination cases, but there are some others out there. For instance, we have Goodrich versus Good Samaritan Regional Health Center, a case out of Illinois. In that case, an employee who was a security officer at a healthcare facility had received an exemption to the employer's vaccine requirement, but was required to undergo weekly testing. For some reason, the employee refused to do the weekly testing and was terminated as a result. 
the employee filed a claim for wrongful termination for failure to submit to emergency use authorization products brought under the Federal Food and Drug, I'm sorry, Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic, Cosmetic Act. The court dismissed this claim because there is no private right of action under the act, meaning the law does not allow individuals to bring lawsuits. Now, some of you may be chuckling about what a lame claim this was, and I agree that the federal claim was pretty weak. But there is still a pending state claim under the Illinois Healthcare Right of Conscience Act that has not been decided. Now, I'm not going to do a deep dive on that particular state claim, although I will say I don't think it has much of a chance. But here's the point I want to make. A lot of states passed a lot of different laws during COVID, and some give individuals rights relating to medical procedures and tests. So employers should be cautious and review all applicable laws when faced with this kind of a scenario. Finally, let's look at Wadley versus National Railway Equipment Company, in which an employee was fired for excessive absenteeism. This case has a pretty complicated procedural history, but I want to focus on one aspect. The employee in the case had a lot of absences, but included among his time off was a leave under the Family's First Coronavirus Response Act. Remember that? The court in this case ultimately concluded that the employer could fire the employee for excessive absenteeism, and it could fire him with or without cause. What it could not do, however, was fire him for taking FFCRA-covered leave. So the takeaway is that if you have an employee you are planning to terminate for absenteeism who took protected leave, you need to make sure you clearly document that the covered leave is not a contributing factor to the termination. I've encountered the same scenario many times with FMLA covered leave, and the best defense is clear and concise documentation, which is always an asset in the labor and employment law world. This has been the Practical Employment Law Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please watch for future episodes wherever you get podcasts. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to contact me about any aspect of the podcast, my email address is mchumley at kmklaw.com, and my full contact information is in the show notes. This podcast was created for general informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. Although we attempt to ensure that the podcast is complete, accurate, and up-to-date, we assume no responsibility for its completeness, accuracy, or timeliness. The information in this podcast is not intended to create, and listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Listeners should not act upon this information without seeking professional legal counsel.